were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Welcome to Good Heavens, a podcast about how the heavens declare the glory of God. Here is your host, Daniel Ray. As I am recording this, it is the peak week of the Perseid meteor shower. But this year, the brightness of the full moon will be washing out a lot of the dimmer streaks, making viewing the Perseids a bit of a challenge. Such was not the case in mid-November of 1833, during the peak of the Leonid meteor shower. This shower, however, has since been classified as a meteor storm, as stunned observers from all up and down the east coast of North America reported seeing upwards of a hundred or more meteors per minute. Many frightened observers believed the world had finally come to an end. Quote, the meteors fell from the elements the 12th of November 1833 on Thursday in Washington. It frightened the people half to death. End quote. Consider these other eyewitness testimonies. Quote, the stars showered down so thickly and fast that it looked as though every star in the heavens was falling. When they touched the ground, they burst and drifted away. Stars were still falling when the sun arose the next morning. Never before had there been such a sight witnessed, nor has there been, since the greatest meteoric display of our age. End quote. Or another. Quote, On the night of November 12th and 13th, 1833, a tempest of falling stars broke over the earth. The sky was scored in every direction with shining tracks and illuminated with majestic fireballs. At Boston, the frequency of meteors was estimated to be about half that of flakes of snow in an average snowstorm. Their numbers were quite beyond counting. But as it waned, a reckoning was attempted from which it was computed, on the basis of that much diminished rate, that 240,000 must have been visible during the nine hours they continued to fall. End quote. Today, the science of the heavens tells us that the meteors that cyclically appear to emanate out of the constellation of Leo the Lion come from the tail debris of a comet known as Comet 55P Temple Tuttle. While the Leonids are an annual event, peaking in mid-November, every 33 years the number of meteors increases dramatically. The next expected prolific Leonid meteor shower is in 2031. We know, of course, that the world did not end in 1833, but I can imagine the meteor storm may have reminded a few onlookers of what Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel about signs in the heavens. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 24:29 that, quote, 
Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Signs in the heavens will indeed precede the second coming of the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke records Jesus testifying that, quote, There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress among nations, perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves, people fainting from fear and the expectation of the things that are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. End quote. Every unique event in the universe, from a total solar eclipse to great meteor storms, and every new discovery of the depth, enormity, and beauty of the cosmos is a revelation of God's magnanimous glory and a reminder to all the inhabitants of Earth to be ready. If the powers of the heavens were shaken today, to whom would people turn? My guess is scientists at NASA and the ESA would be furiously busy attempting to answer media queries and emails from fearful denizens of Earth wondering whether this is the end of the world as we know it. But science is ill-equipped to explain the theological significance of the heavens coming unglued. What would we be told? What kind of panic would ensue? There would be attempts at scientific explanations of these uniquely terrifying events, to be sure, but none of them would assuage the fears of millions of people around the globe of the impending catastrophes that would certainly ensue from the moon falling out of orbit or the sun suddenly going dark outside of a solar eclipse. Might the world turn to theologians in such a crisis? Today, the cosmos is thankfully still serene in its regular coursings. The sun and moon are on path as always, and the planets are lining up just as predicted. Stars sit like dutiful sentinels at their posts, shining their message to us night after night. This fixed order is something most of us take for granted, but it is one of many signs that pour forth to us day after day and night after night, signs that are telling of the glory of God. It is our hope and prayer here at Good Heavens that you come to understand what God's glory is all about and the significance of these signs before the powers of the heavens are shaken one last and final time. But when they are, science will not have all the answers to the most fundamental and important questions about what it all means. No telescope or satellite is capable of answering Jesus' question he puts to his disciples, for example. Quote, 
who do you say that I am? End quote. So while the fixed order remains, now is the time to answer that most pressing question. Jesus is Lord, and he is returning. Who do you say that he is? Will you be ready? Our very special guest on the next three episodes of Good Heavens, Dr. Leslie Wickman, is certainly ready. She is a Christian and an astrophysicist to whom the news media giant CNN reached out for comment in 2014 regarding the potential discovery of gravitational waves. The universe was indeed a little shaken, we now know, as gravitational waves do in fact exist. They are generated by colliding supermassive black holes, which create little ripples in space-time fabric. Leslie agreed to write the article for CNN, and to her astonishment, it soon went viral. She quickly found herself writing an entire book on the subject of God and the universe. A link to Leslie's original article on CNN will be provided in the notes below. Leslie's book, God of the Big Bang, is the focus of our conversation for the next three episodes on Good Heavens. It is a wonderfully accessible book covering a wide range of theological and scientific topics in a simple and down-to-earth prose that a wider lay audience can easily grasp. Leslie argues that there is no need to choose between science and faith in Christ, and that there is nothing in the cosmos that conflicts with anything found in the pages of Scripture. Christians need not fear science. As we begin part one, Leslie talks about how CNN reached out to her and how the book came about. She shares with us her understanding of Genesis and creation, and we get into some of the details of how Leslie sees evidence for God throughout the universe. Here is Dr. Leslie Wickman. teaching astronomy at Azusa Pacific at the time and the university relations office there was really proactive about like connecting um, subject matter experts on campus with media outlets and so when this big news about possible evidence for gravity waves uh, came out um, they reached out to me and said would you be willing to talk to some media outlets so, so they set up a whole, you know, slew of different kinds of interviews and um, opportunities to talk uh, with various outlets. And then uh, a couple of days later, they said, we've got this opportunity for you to write uh, an op-ed piece for CNN's belief net, I think is what it's called. And um, so they gave me 24 hours to write this thing. And I was teaching that night, so I couldn't even start on it till like eight or so in the evening. And, you know, it's something that I'd thought about quite a bit already. So um, I, you know, spent three hours writing it and sent it to the CNN editor who titled it in a way that I never would have, because I am super careful with the word proof. Mm. There's so much baggage that goes along with that word. I don't care who you are, whether you're right. a scientist, whether you're a Christian, whether you're a lay person, a skeptic, there's just so much baggage, you know? And so he titles it, does Big Bang Breakthrough offer proof of God, you know? And he didn't run that title by <laughs> me. He just slapped it on there and there you go. Yeah. And it was, you know, totally clipped clickbait right so people are like oh my gosh that's outrageous you know and 
um, half a million views later, you know, I got this book contract. Worthy publishers got in touch with me after the CNN article came out and, and said, can you write a book on this in four months? And so I'm like, uh, sure. <laughs> so, wow. Wow. Now, did yeah. you, uh, this, I, I, I didn't see the article on CNN actually. Did, was there a slew of commentary underneath it? There was, you know, and as kind of a, a <laughs> novice to the um, publishing on the internet, oh gosh, world, <laughs> I started reading them. Yeah, and then you're like, <laughs> nope. On, I started, but yeah, after a while, I was like, you know what? This is not profitable. <laughs> I mean, there were a lot of positive comments, but you inevitably you get the people that are just trolling for. Uh, something controversial to right. you know, voice their two cents and, right. and anonymously, by the way. Yes. And, you know, they know who I am, but you don't know who they are. That and, is, uh, uh, that is our culture today. That, exactly. Uh, we, uh, we, um, I was on Twitter a couple of years. Well, I recently got off in the last year. So I started uh, Twitter with my, just with the idea of, well, I'm going to get on social media and promote my book. And that's what I did, but uh, boy, was that that turned into a quagmire. Uh, several years later, I couldn't post anything without, you know, like like I I made dinner for our book club. Oh, Ray, you're an idiot. You know, it's just like, okay, you know. So it's it's not it's so counterproductive to to do no, that. Exactly. And, uh, exactly. And that's the thing, you know. I mean, if you if you have the discipline to just not not bother with the responses or mm-hmm. you know, really good at screening, then then that's one thing. Um, So I just, you know, I'm like, you know what, it's just not profitable to, and so I kind of have the practice of looking at the first few comments and and then just, you know, tuning out. Right, right, right. Which is, which is very wise. Um, But uh, you, you have the whole article. So in your book, um, so that was, that was really nice. Um, This was, this was so cool to me. I was tickled by this. I did, a lot of people kind of looked at me sideways when I told them what my, my master's degree was on Narnia. So people are like, what are you going to do with that, Dan? <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> I don't know. It was just something I wanted to do. And I studied uh, C.S. Lewis and uh, with uh, Michael Ward, who wrote a book mm-hmm. called, called Planet Narnia. And, oh, cool. I haven't read that. Yeah, that was my thesis. And Michael said I was the first one to do a master's thesis on his book. Uh, that's but awesome. that's what I did, and so people are like, what, "What kind of job are you going to get with that?" I said, "I don't know, <laughs> but I, I I enjoy it. That's what I wanted to do." And uh, so, yeah, out of that came our book that I'm going to send you, um, "The Story of the Cosmos: How the Heavens Declare the Glory of God." But in your CNN article, um, you quote a, a something from Narnia that I wanted to share with our listeners that is probably familiar with to most of our listeners in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yes. The children have just come into Narnia, and uh, they are exploring it for the first time, and they're tromping through the snow where it's always winter and never Christmas, and they encounter some talking beavers who bring them into their lair, and uh, the beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, tell them about Aslan, and, uh, uh, you know, that he's a lion, and the kids are like, is he safe? And, uh, you know, they, then, of course, the beaver's quote is, he isn't safe. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Amen. And uh, that that couldn't better describe both God and 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 the world that he has he has created. He has yes. not guaranteed us our 
physical safety per se, but uh, he has secured for us our eternal security in Christ. But um, here's kind of how I want to thematize, is that a word, to to lay out a theme about what we were talking about. I was reading this book yesterday, and I read this again, and I ran across, I was reading in the book of Job. Um, Let me go ahead and just find it here so I don't, so I get it right. I know I told you that we weren't, I was going to be totally unprepared. This is actually spontaneous. I had not prepared this. Uh, so um, I'm reading in Job, and of course, at the end of Job, God says, uh, he asks all these questions about creation Job can't answer. Right. Um, can you send forth lightnings that they may go, right? And you quote in the book, you say one of the facts about Earth are lightning strikes. If we had too, yeah. too many, we'd be barbecued. If we had if too little, there'd be overgrowth and all this problem. And and so here in, in Job, can you send forth lightnings? So God commands the lightning uh, who say to God, here we are, right? So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. but what got me was verse 39, can you hunt the prey for the lion? And I thought about there, there's there's some theological richness in there because I know in big secular science, I've done a lot of reading at the popular level about uh, cosmology and science for my own book and just because that's what I enjoy doing. But at the popular level, Leslie, where God is removed from the overall ultimate cause of everything, physicists are still left with the necessity of coming up with some kind of causal agency, whether that's – so you remove the the personal and then you're you're left with – what can only be described as impersonal, naturalistic causality. But here in Job, God is saying, I'm the one hunting prey for the lion. And if you were in an undergraduate biology class at uh, any secular university and you were learning about lions on the Serengeti, what would you hear? You would, you would be told something like natural selection is guiding the lion to do X, Y, and Z. But here, ultimately, God is the one doing the hunting. And uh, so as I was reading your book and thinking about this concept, uh, I'm thinking about Jesus. He's, he's, he, he, when he calls the disciples, what does he say? Um, Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Fishers of men, exactly. You know, so yeah. God knows where to go. God's the one who catches people. And it's kind of disquieting because God is a like a lion, like Aslan. He's not safe. He's, he's a hunter. He hunts us. Right. He comes, you know, Lewis's whole conversion was he, he, he saw God as the hound of heaven, of heaven. who, who, yes. who sought him down, you know. And, yes. and uh, so when we're talking about the universe, all this to say, when we're talking about the universe, and we're talking about ultimate causality. I think you outlined in the book pretty well um, the different kinds of causality that, that are uh, exp- explanatory causality. So we can have a physical explanation and we can also have a personal explanation. Right. Um, so in terms of the universe, before we go too deep into it, let's talk about this principle of causality and the difference between how you see the difference between, you know, say a law, like if I wrote the equation for the strong nuclear force on a chalkboard, um, the room wouldn't suddenly be sucked into this equation because the equation itself is inert, right? right? But there is something going on there. Um, but it seems for physicists and cosmologists who don't understand or recognize God in any part of this, that these physic these laws have to be causal. They have to have these powers that almost are godlike, because yeah. God is not there. And so, so how do you see the difference between causality in in secular physics and causality from a Christian perspective in terms of the universe? 
Oh my goodness, that's that's an easy one, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's just casual, just casual conversation, you know. <laughs> right, exactly. But no, you're absolutely right. I think if you if you take uh, a personal God who causes everything out of the equation, then then you're bankrupt, really. I mean, you and you are looking for okay, why are things the way they are. And I, I think that's one of the big shortfalls of secular uh, materialistic, shall we say, physics is you know, how do you explain these, these perfect laws that govern the behavior of space, time, matter, and energy, which if they were any different, we get a completely different universe, which if you explore the, the probabilities and the the possibilities of what those laws could be in, you know, 99.99999 repeating percent of the time, you do not get a habitable universe. And, and so again, that is, it's one of the shortfalls of materialistic physics. Uh, And so they're constantly looking material uh, materialistic physicists are constantly looking for other explanations. And, and really, I mean, the most popular argument these days is the multiverse hypothesis, right? Is that, well, if we have an infinite number of chances in these different universes to get all the numbers exactly right, then, then maybe there is a way to say that random chance uh, came up with, you know, hitting the, the jackpot, um, but you know, here it's a completely speculative uh, argument in the sense that you know, by the very definition of a universe, we only have access to that which is in the universe, right, that we live in, and so we have absolutely no access or evidence uh, to support the idea of a multiverse, whether it's you know concurrent in in space and time or whether it's sequential. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it it is one of the biggest, uh, shortcomings in terms of a, uh, satisfying explanation of causality and, uh, materialistic physics. Um, and then you go, you know, you did ask the question also from a, a Christian point of view. Um, you know, I mean, it, the idea of, well, even, even from philosophy in the cosmological argument, you have uh, the, the premise that if anything begins to exist, there must be a cause for its existence. And, and so the Big Bang, uh, the mounting evidence, the growing body of evidence that the Big Bang is a good um, uh, physical model for the universe, uh, shows that the universe, our universe, had a beginning. And so if there was a beginning to the universe by the cosmological argument, um, there must be a cause for the universe. And so we've, we look at Genesis 1-1. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, I mean, that comports really, really well mm-hmm. with a, a, an origin story mm-hmm. uh, for the universe. Some Christians will say that it costs too much to align our theology with Big Bang science because we have, we purchase, we have the Big Bang, but it seems that some object to it because Big Bang going forward 
it's a long, slow, gradual, evolutionary process that sounds a lot like Darwin's theory of natural selection. In other words, billions of years, lots of time, long, slow, gradual development of the cosmos. Uh, how how would you respond to, to in, in, this is an inter-Christian dialogue kind of question, how would you respond to, to Christians who think that aligning ourselves with Big Bang science is a little too costly, uh, a little too much compromise with, with, with big secular science? What would you say? Well, I have two points that I'd like to make in response to that. One is that um, scripture tells us that God reveals himself in nature, in what he's created. Um, and And so, you know, Christians from certainly from the Renaissance time, if not before that, um, uh, believe that uh, God has revealed himself in in two books, the book of nature on one hand and the book of scripture on the other. And of course, this is um, referred to in theological theological circles as dual revelation. Right. Right. And, And so. So if, if we truly believe that God is the creator of all of nature, then we can trust nature as a reliable witness to who God is. And so I think the key for us as Christians is to look at God's two books and figure out, you know, if they're both reliable revelations of who God is, then how do they best fit together? Mm-hmm. And, and it's not this kind of casual Sunday school science or Sunday school theology of just saying, well, just read it. You know, it, 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 it's, it's very clear, you know, just take it at face value. That's a very lazy approach to scripture and to nature. Mm-hmm. And, and we have to do our homework, right? We have to, mm-hmm. I mean, we can't, you know, just open the Bible and try to read from a 20, 21st century perspective um, you know, what was written in Hebrew and Greek, right? Yeah. And we have to, we have to be smart about it. We have to uh, stand on the, the shoulders of those who have gone before us. We have to um, use good hermeneutical principles. We have to look at the genre, the context, what is the primary message, all those things. And again, you know, if we trust that God is the author of creation as well, then how do they, how do those two books fit together what makes the most sense Mm. and so i think you can you can look at genesis um and just just go back to the original language and realize that each of the days in genesis um uh are called yom right Mm -hmm. the word is yom and in hebrew the word yom can be uh meant to be a 24-hour period or an era Mm. Those are both literal translations of that word. Um, and then, so, so first of all, you, you, can, you could look at the days of Genesis as eras. And, uh, and you can also, as John Walton does, um, he, he, he's from Wheaton College. Yes. And he, he looks at the days of Genesis, the Genesis account as uh, a, a poetic account. Uh, conve- conveying theological meaning and purpose, but that the first three days are days of um, creating spaces, and the next three days are days of uh, filling those spaces. And it's this beautiful uh, representation of God's work without 
being meant to uh, be perceived as a science account or a technology or technical account yeah. of how God did these things. Uh, and, and so we look at, you know, what was the purpose of that Genesis one account? Well, it's primarily the- theological to convey uh, the idea that God created. He was very uh, careful about his creation, meticulous in preparing this amazing planet mm-hmm. that supports life. Um, and that he wants a relationship with us. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's, there's a lot just, just from that two books of revelation, you know, how do, how does God's faithful revelation of himself in creation square up with God's faithful rep- representation of himself in scripture. And just from that, I think we can, uh, we can learn a lot about how to put the pieces together. Yeah. The second, uh, the second point that I wanted to make is, is just simply that, you know, in our own personal lives, God tends to work in processes, mm. you know, I mean, he doesn't, when we pray for patience, he doesn't <laughs> we get it. <laughs> that's, that's a proof. I tell my skeptic friends, if you want to prove that prayer works, ask for patience. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You'll get it all the time. <laughs> exactly. Or wisdom or anything yeah. else that we pray for, right? It's not right. a God snapping his fingers and doing a fiat miracle and giving you patience immediately or wisdom immediately. It's right. a, a process. Right. And so and and I, I you know, it's it's interesting too when we look at, you know, what exactly can we learn about God through his creation? You know, some people would would say, well, they're Romans, Paul in Romans is just talking about, you know, the, the fact that God is, is mighty and he's big and he's powerful and all these things. And I honestly think that there are more things that we can learn about. Uh, oh, absolutely. God yeah. His, you know, and the fact that he works in processes, it, it, like I said, it comports well with our own experiences mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. in addition to how he works in the world. Um, and, you know, and also I think in looking at how, amazingly crafted um not just our planet but our solar system galaxy the universe uh how well crafted creation is in providing us with a place where we can not not just barely kind of eke out an existence like some biology experiment but where we can flourish and thrive and enjoy god's creation you know i think that speaks to a loving god Right, uh, right. So I think there's a lot that we can learn from the book of nature. Absolutely. I, re- I was, um, this was several years ago, but it sticks with me as though it happened uh, recently. I was leaving, uh, I went to the Fort Worth Zoo here in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area a couple of years ago, and I was leaving, it was closing time, and I went by the lion's cage on the way out of the park, and they had just started feeding the lions. So I had walked maybe about 100 yards, I don't know how far it was, about 100 yards to the entrance uh, from the lion's cage, and uh, as I'm walking out, the male lion lets a roar out. It mm. was stunning. I mean, it was. I've never heard a lion roar like that. And uh, the cage that it was set up in, it wasn't a cage. It was more like a rock formation kind of place. So there was a there was a natural sort of um, reverberation in the kind of uh, enclosure where the lion was. A lot of concrete and stuff. So I'm sure that amplified it. But wow. Um, you know, the, the, the roar of the lion. I mean, Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
Amen. And uh, yeah, he he says uh, in one of the prophets, uh, I forget where I had it written down. Let me see if I have that. One of the prophets, he says he's going to be like a lion to his people. Um, And, you know, and you so you think about just the nature of a lion. Uh, Of course, you have the beautiful scene in Narnia where where the, the children see Aslan creating um, and speaking and just this musical cadence that comes out that's hard to put in words and you know C.S. Lewis's imagination of what did it look like or sound like when God spoke uh, creation into being and uh, <clears throat> I used to teach English and I used to have a picture of the solar system and the planets above my board in my English class and it was middle school and high school and some occasionally the children would it, it was there so the kids would ask me so mr ray why do you have planets this isn't science class right and they're 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 conditioned to separate oh. science class from right. english class and so i want to try to break that mold and i said well how i worked at a christian school several christian schools i said well how how did how did god create everything well he, he spoke so you know what kind of sentences make universes you know i mean <laughs> what kind of verbiage <laughs> what kind of roaring creates did he whisper did he roar what did he do um you know we don't know but we are seeing the reverberations of god's utterances in creation and everything that he does and so that passage about can you hunt the prey for the lions is that god is doing this god is the one orchestrating uh creation and 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 revealing himself in birds In trees, in stars, in the sky, in the sun, and the moon, and 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 yeah. everything, you know, the the the, uh, it's just it's a, it's it's continual speech. It's Psalm, you quote Psalm nineteen in your book. Uh, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and and the skies proclaim His handiwork. Day unto day pours forth. There's that that language of pouring forth, the abundance of God's speech pouring forth from the heavens, just like uh, the stone water pots at Cana. You know, God filled yeah. it up to the brim. You know, and and so, like you said, God gives us an abundance. And yes, uh, um, since we're we're on this topic, and I know it's a hot topic now, and uh, you quote this verse a couple of times in the book. One of them on page thirty, First Corinthians thirteen twelve, which is one of my favorite verses. And uh, though it's uh, you know the Apostle Paul two thousand years ago, I think it absolutely is a wonderful verse for for us in the twenty first century who are enamored with telescopes and mirrors and our devices. We see through a glass darkly. We we only yeah. know in part. And um, you read the article that I'd written for the French Porch Republic where I l- yeah. lamented this idea that we seem to be more enamored with our devices uh, than we are with, with the cosmos, just sort of making that bigger point that, look, our, our right. telescopes are so wonderful. and um, mm-hmm. But yet, and, and as I pointed out, and I have you comment on this, despite all that we know, I say big science, big secular science. Despite the the higher resolution that James Webb brings us of these wonderful deep space images, NASA seems to be no closer to being able to articulate any kind of what is this, right? If we go, mm-hmm. if we take it back to Narnia and we we see that scene where Eustace is talking to Ramandu, the retired star, remember? Oh yeah, and, uh, yep. and Eustace says, "You're a retired star? Like you can't believe it." He says, "In my world, a star is just a huge ball of flaming gas." And Ram- Ramandu mm-hmm. says, that's not what a star is. That's only what a star is made of. Right. So it seems like astronomy and cosmologists are really good at telling us what it's all made of. Right. Uh, the arrangement, which is what cosmos means, right? Everything is kind of arranged in a, in, a, in a way that is fascinating to us. But we don't know, I say we in the secular sense, don't know what the universe 
is. Um, and what do you see in your studies and, and, and your colleagues and things? Is there any kind of an attempt, Leslie, that you've seen from from the secular side of, of big science of the universe about what the universe is? Uh, versus where, you right. know, Christians, we have this explanation that it is a creation of, of our creator, of Jesus. But secular science, they, they can't, I, it would seem like that would be a, a cognitively difficult thing to, to say, I, this, there's oxygen, nitrogen, silicon, and all this stuff, but what is all this? Yeah, yeah. And I think there's, there's kind of a mentality that um, it's, it's unknowable. I, you know, I mean, we're going to learn as much as we possibly can about, you know, what it's made of, uh, how dark matter and dark energy work. Um, you know, I mean, these things are deep mysteries, right? And, and I mean, they're mysteries at the level of why does uh, the universal law of gravitation work, right? right? Why do masses attract each other? Um, and why do really big masses bend space? And, you know, what is this weird dark energy stuff that's fueling the expansion rate of the universe at an accelerating pace? Um, you know, what is dark matter, this stuff that must be out there because it acts like regular matter, except it, we can't see it and it doesn't interact with light. These are big mysteries, right? Yeah. And so, so even at the physical level, there's so much that we don't understand. Mm. And, you know, we're, we're just scratching the surface. And for me, I think um, that kind of heightens this sense of wonder. And I think you have to be almost dead not to, <laughs> not to experience that at least. And right. I think there is uh, a real sense of awe and wonder that's alive and well in the scientific community. Um, but there's also this kind of, uh, at least on the secular side. Now, one thing that I'd like to point out is that I think there's a, a kind of a broad misunderstanding in our culture um, that, you know, there's the secular science or the, the, uh, there's the science that is being funded by the government that um, is perceived as, as very materialistic and naturalistic and whatnot. But the reality is a recent poll um, uh, by a sociological researcher at Rice University showed that over 60% of practicing American scientists self-identify as Christian. Really? Yes. Wow. And that's not something that you hear in the secular media too often. No, and that's uh, not uh, that's not what you see. Uh, you know, I referenced earlier all the popular literature that you would get uh, a book about written by uh, science popularizers uh, who intentionally or otherwise just sort of leave God out of the the equation, if you will. Right. So you don't right. you don't get as you just said too. You don't get the impression from the media or the popular books that you read um, that 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 such a statistic could have any possible means of being true. Right, right, exactly. And so, and so, I mean, there are I, many, many Christians working in the science uh, disciplines throughout the country. And, and so, yeah, I mean, obviously, for for people who are believers already, this, all this stuff just comports really well with their worldview, because it's like, wow, I mean, for me, 
the more I learn about the intricacies and the synergies of the different parts of the universe, whether from the very, very small to the very, very large, largest scale of the universe itself, you know, we see how intricate and synergistic things are. You know, if the, the things were off by just the smallest percentage, it just doesn't work, you know, from the strong nuclear force to, um, to gravity waves to uh, dark energy, dark matter, you know, all these things that, that work to provide us a universe where planets like Earth are possible even, mm-hmm. right? Um, and to me, it's just, it inspires more awe and wonder and worship. You know, to the extent that, again, you know, this idea of taking God out of the box that we've constructed for him is similar to um, um, Lewis's view of who Aslan is, that he's created, you know, as this character to represent God, you know, is that, of course, Aslan is not safe, but he's good. Right. I mean, it just gives you chills to think about that. It's like, yeah, we can't know God fully and certainly can't understand God fully. I mean, even when we get to heaven, I think it's going to be a, a series of revelations. I mean, right. every instant we're going to learn something new that just blows our minds, you know, yeah. and, and yeah, he's not safe, but he's good. We can trust him to be good. Mm. And we can see that again. We can see that from God's creation as well as in scripture. Mm. And, um, you know, so this idea though, that, that God is a lot more complex and nuanced and, you know, just has so much more about who he is than we can possibly understand and appreciate. But at every turn, when I learn something new uh, about um, let's, I mean, one of my favorite ones to, to talk about it is actually uh, pretty easy to um to access. I think it's, it's a very simple concept, but it's, it's one that I think is just uh, speaks volumes about God's care uh, in, in providing this place that we call planet earth. Right. And Mm. that is um, that the earth's gravity is just exactly right to hold on to huge amounts of water vapor H2O um, at 18 grams per mole, which is absolutely essential for life and for the the water cycle that purifies water on the earth and not strong enough to hold on to large amounts of methane and ammonia at 16 and 17 grams per mole. Mm. So strong enough to hold on to stuff that weighs 18 grams per mole or more, not strong enough to hold on to poisonous stuff at 16, 17, 16 and 17 grams per mole that we kill. Right. I mean, that's just one mind blowing example of, yeah. of all these things that God has orchestrated so perfectly. Right. And, and quite honestly, you know, my, my awe and wonder at who God is has just expanded so, so much in looking at these connections that I'm like, you know, bring on the multiverse. My God is big enough for a multiverse. My God is big enough to have created life elsewhere on other planets in this universe. But he's also big enough to be the God over an infinite number of universes. Thank you for tuning in today. 
If you've enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Leslie Wickman, do join us live on Zoom this October, where Watchman Fellowship will be featuring Dr. Wickman live on our Atheist and Christian Book Club. Leslie will be talking more about her book, God of the Big Bang, and will be open to taking questions and having further dialogue with us about issues of science and faith. For more information on how to join us, it is free, you can visit our book club website at atheistchristianbookclub.com. That's atheistchristianbookclub.com for how you can join us live and for free in October with Dr. Leslie Wickman. And invite a friend or two. Links will be available in the notes section of this episode for more information, including how to get a copy of Leslie's book and the article she wrote for CNN. And for more information about apologetics, cults, or our sister podcast, Apologetics Profile, and a wide variety of information on world religions, do visit our ministry's website at watchman.org. That is watchman with an A dot O-R-G. We hope you'll join us again next week for part two. For Good Heavens and Watchman Fellowship, I'm staff apologist Daniel Ray. Soli Deo Gloria.